You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. Gospel of John, chapter 4. We are still looking at one particular verse and the implications of that, that God who is spirit must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. So we are camping for a few weeks on John, chapter 4, verse 24. We'll read the context, beginning at verse 19. This is the woman of Samaria at the well side. After having understood who Jesus is and what he was claiming and what he was offering, she said to him in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. and You people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time as we begin. Our Father, our desire is that you would make us what we are not, and that you would conform us to the image of Christ, that we might be true worshipers, and that we might offer to you true worship. We pray that together you may unite our hearts in understanding what the implications of this are and what it is that you desire from us, not only individually, but corporately, and that you would be pleased to reveal yourself to us and your will to us now in the pages of Scripture. May you speak to us here, and O Spirit of God, be our guide and our teacher this morning. We commit ourselves to you to this end and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Much of the Christian life is about avoiding ditches. And by ditches, I mean the extremes on either side of a certain biblical position. And I can think of a lot of ditches that we try to avoid. We try to stay right up on the road. Uh, Let me give you a few examples of the type of ditches that I'm talking about on We have theological ditches, and almost every theological position has a ditch on one side or the other. And theology is much like a a mountaintop, where as long as you're right on the peak, as long as you're right on the crest of it, everything is fine. But the further you go down off of one side or the other, the more in danger you become. Um, Theologically speaking, there are all kinds of ditches on almost every theological subject. You would have on one side, for instance, an Arminian, semi-Pelagian, Pelagian heresy ditch, and on the other side would be an, uh, a hyper-Calvinist ditch. And the biblical road is right in between those two extremes. One that gives no position to man's responsibility or part in uh, salvation and what God does in the man as a result of grace. And the other which gives no place at all to the position of God's sovereignty and his predetermination. There is also a sanctification road and sanctification ditches. And we've talked about this before in Philippians. On the one side, you have the, uh, God does everything and I don't have to do anything. I just throw up my hands and let go and let God and He'll sanctify me and make me holy and I don't have to put forth any effort whatsoever. Ditch. 
And on the other side is that I have to do everything in my sanctification. I have to make myself holy and make myself acceptable to God ditch. And the truth is right in between that. It is God who works in us and we work out our own salvation. Both of those things are true. There's the legalism, antinomianism ditch. On the one side, there are people who would say, well, I can just, because my sin is covered by grace, I can live however I want, and I can just keep on going on sinning in order that God's grace might cover it and God might be magnified. That's antinomianism. That's one ditch. And then there's the legalism on the other side, which says I need to regulate for myself, my family, and everybody around me and everybody I meet what type of clothes they wear, what type of hairstyle they have, whether their ears are pierced, if they wear makeup, what they watch, and all of that other stuff that goes on with the sort of righteousness by legalism approach. Those are two different, ditch, two different ditches. In the area of worship, it's much the same thing. And the sermon last week was about trying to help us navigate between two ditches. On the one hand, a hyper-emotionalism and an over-emotionalism, which leaves no place for truth, and on the other hand, such a commitment to truth and orthodoxy that we have no place for the spiritual aspect of worship. And we want to be right in the middle on the road, as it were, between those two extremes. You remember last week, I, I kind of gave you four points, and I want to review these again quickly for you in just a couple of sentences on each one. First, we learned that we don't have to choose, nor can we choose, between spirit and truth. These are not optional. Jesus didn't say these things are, are really good if you can work spirit and truth into worship. He said these two things, both of them must be present. Not only can we not choose between the two, but we do not choose between the two. And if we choose one over the other, we actually destroy the one that we choose. Because the minute you exclude one and land in the camp of the other, you destroy the very one that you have chosen at the exclusion of the other because they both have to go together. Second, we saw that this, these two parameters, spirit and truth, form two very uh, narrow parameters for our worship. And yet within those narrow parameters, which excludes everything that is not of the Spirit, the human spirit, and everything that is not true, there is still, within those two narrow parameters, a tremendous amount of latitude for us in our worship and freedom to worship God in a number of different ways, a number of different formats and times and places and all of that. Third, we observed that worship is not for us or about us. It is for God and it is about God. And that, I think, is the fundamental place where evangelicalism has flipped entirely on its head entirely on its head. Worship services now are geared to be about men and for men with the sinner, the believer, the unbeliever in mind. And that is absolutely backwards to what it should be. Worship is not for us and worship is not about us. And we err at a very fundamental level when we ask the question, what do I want to get out of a worship service? Or what do I want people to get out of a worship service? That question can never even enter into the equation. It's not even a legitimate question to ask at any point in determining what is worship and what is not worship. The only question is, what does God want to get out of this worship service, and what am I going to offer and give to Him in this worship service? And fourth, we saw last week that our worship is a response. It's a response to what God has done. So I can't offer to you any pattern, any liturgy, any structure, any form, any formula, or anything like that, which is I say that you do this, this, and this, and then you will have worship. I can't do that, because worship is a response to what God has done in us, and through us, and around us, and for us. Worship responds to that. So I can't offer you a form. If I were to give you a form, it would defeat the very thing that Jesus is saying, don't do. Because it would be offering to you mere formalism and tricking you into thinking that if you adopt the formalism that was presented from the pulpit, that all of a sudden you're worshiping. And that may or may not be the case. Now today, we're going to talk about spirit, part of spirit and truth. Last week, we looked at two of those, those two things together. Today, we're looking at just the spirit aspect of spirit 
and truth. What does it mean to worship in spirit? And what are the implications of that to our worship and for our worship, not only individually when we're outside of here, but also while we are here? What is What are the implications of that? I came across a little proverb on a radio station that I listened to, or a radio program that I listened to quite frequently. And all of last year, this was written across the top of my desk calendar so that I would memorize it. Because I think the more I have this in my mind and the more I think about this little proverb, the more true it appears to me and the more, um, the more beneficial it is. Here's the proverb. Emotions make life delicious. Clear thinking makes life safe. Emotions make life delicious. Clear thinking makes life safe. I want you to think about that for a second. Emotions make life delicious. Very true. We enjoy human emotion, and emotion is what makes life delicious. Even the bad emotions make life delicious. Uh, The sadness, the disappointment, the trials, the tribulations, all of those things work together in the mix to make life delicious. And the joys and the happinesses and the gladnesses and, and all of the things that we experience and the love and the affections and all of the human emotions, they make life delicious. Clear thinking makes life safe. But see, if you're geared and you run just by emotion, is life going to be safe? No, you have to have some sort of parameter in place that says this is the proper use of emotion. This is proper living. Emotions make life delicious. Clear thinking makes life safe. It's a beautiful truism. So let's sort of approximate that or or, or bring that over into worship and apply it to worship because I think the same truth applies in the arena of worship. And we might equate the emotions to spirit, though it's, it's not exactly equal, and clear thinking to truth. And we would say it this way. Spirit makes worship delicious. Truth makes worship safe. Spirit makes worship delicious. Truth makes our worship safe. Now, if you have spirit and truth together and you take the spirit out of it so that all you have is truth, then what you are left with is something that is not at all delicious. And by delicious, I mean enjoyable and rewarding and involving and engaging and personal. It becomes very dry. It becomes a drudgery. It becomes a duty when you take the spirit aspect out of worship. But if all you have is spirit and you take the truth out, then your worship becomes very dangerous very quickly. Because then there is nothing in place that is going to keep you from offering idolatrous worship or worshiping an idol, or worshiping God in a way that he is appalled or views as an abomination. So you have to have both spirit and truth together. So let's deal with the truth part of it. Remember that phrase, emotions make life delicious, clear thinking makes life safe. You think about that, you will find out more and more often exactly how true that is. Both of those have to be present. So what does it mean when Jesus said, God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Let's just deal with the spirit element of our worship. What does that mean? When Jesus said, those who worship God must worship in spirit, he is not talking about the Holy Spirit. He is talking about the human spirit. He's not describing the person of the Holy Spirit in this passage. He is talking about the unseen part of us, that which makes you, you. The inner man, the inner soul, the inner spirit, the unseen spiritual component of you. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit. Now that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit has no uh, bearing on our worship or no involvement in our worship. The Holy Spirit is very much involved in our worship. The Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Holy Spirit takes the, the words of the song and sings through us to the Father and encourages our worship and engages our worship. And the Holy Spirit is what takes what we offer to hear, uh, to offer to God here as paltry and inept and crippled as it is and transforms it into something beautiful to the Father. 
He teaches us to pray as we ought to pray. The Spirit of God illumines the Word to us as it is, try that again, as it is preached. And that illumination of the Word as it is preached and that truth bears witness to our spirit and the Spirit of God sanctifies us as we place ourselves under the preaching of the truth and the singing and worship. The Spirit of God is involved in all of the giftedness of individual people as we come together and we offer to the Lord corporately what we do. The Spirit of God is involved in all of that. And I don't deny any of that. But that's not what Jesus is describing here. What Jesus is describing here is the opposite of formalism. It is the involvement and the engagement of the inner man. Something that happens and transpires deep within my spirit and my soul. Where the unseen part of me is engaged in offering to God worship. That is what Jesus is describing. Not the Holy Spirit, but the involvement and the engagement of the human spirit. Now, in order for that to happen, the person who worships must be born again. Because you and I are born dead in sin and trespasses, Ephesians chapter 2, we are born carnally minded, and the carnal man, the dead man, can offer nothing to God that God is pleased with or that is worthy of Him. That's why I said last week, a bunch of goats getting together and singing Christian songs does not constitute worship. It never can. Because the spirit part of us must be born again. It must be made new. It has to be regenerated and infused with the Spirit of God. And we must be given life. Now, each of us is born with a soul, and it is an eternal soul. But the spiritual component of that soul that communes with God, that fellowships with God, that receives and understands the truth of God, and that worships God, is born dead. And barring the regeneration of the Spirit of God, the unregenerate person cannot truly worship. And it doesn't matter if we got a bunch of goats together here and we did it at 1045 and on a Sunday morning we sang Christian songs and we had a very spiritual person leading the worship and a very spiritual person preaching the word and it was actually preaching. None of that would matter. You've heard the old saying, you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. You can't make a worship service out of a bunch of spiritually dead people singing Christian songs. It cannot and does not happen because that is not worship. It is impossible. You might as well ask them to climb to the moon on a rope of sand. It is impossible for somebody who is still spiritually dead and unregenerate to worship God. Now, they can go through the motions. They can lift their hands and sing the songs. But they must be born again. That unseen element inside that is the product of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit must be cleansed and made new and made alive in order for us to worship God properly. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says we were dead in our transgressions and he made us alive together with Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, we were dead in our transgressions and the uncircumcision of our flesh. He made you alive together with him. 1 Corinthians 15 says that all who are in Adam are dead. We are all born in Adam. But all who are in Christ are made alive. We have to be made alive before we can be made true worshipers. Because that unseen component of our, of our spirit must be made quickened and alive and regenerated for us to worship. Now this means that worship is not a matter of our physical bodies. That's not news to anybody here, I hope. Worship is not a matter of our physical bodies. You say, Jim, tell me something that I don't know. We already know that, but here's the implications of that. You cannot tell, looking outwardly at myself or anybody around you, whether or not they have offered true worship. You cannot tell that. Because you may be sitting in the middle of a group of people who are raising their hands and singing loudly, and weeping, and emoting, and very engaged in the activity of what is going on. But since you can't see the heart, you don't know if that's true worship 
or idol worship. Only God knows that. And you and I can't assume that just because somebody has been very engaged in what is happening, that true worship has taken place, because it might be the little old man in the very back row who sits there with his head bowed, doesn't move, doesn't say anything, is hardly singing at all, looks like he's sleeping. He may be the one person in the congregation that is truly worshiping in spirit and in truth. But since worship is a function of the spirit, the inner part of us, you cannot tell outwardly if somebody has worshipped or if somebody has not worshipped. And you can never look across the way and say, he's not singing, so he's not worshipping. Or he's not raising his hand, therefore he's not worshipping. Or he's not engaged as I am or the person in front of him, therefore he's not worshipping. You can't tell that. The spirit aspect of worship is very subjective. You realize that? Very subjective. There is nobody, there is nobody on this planet who knows whether you have worshipped this morning or not, except God and you. Nobody else here can tell that. And you can't tell if the worship team has worshipped yet this morning. I hope they have. But they know that. And God knows that. But you and I can't see or judge that. Now the beautiful part of this is not all of worship is subjective. Some of it's objective. That's the truth part, which we'll get to next week. But truth is very objective, is it not? You and I can discern truth and know truth and, and love truth. And you and I can judge truth, whether something is true or not. I can look at the songs on the overhead behind me and I can read that and I can make a judgment, a discernment as to whether or not that is truth or whether it is falsehood. We can make that judgment. You can sit there with your Bible open in your lap and knowing theology and knowing your Bibles and discern whether what I am speaking to you is truth or not. The truth element of our worship is objective. That is something that all of us can see, all of us can judge, all of us can discern. But the spirit element of our worship is subjective and something that only God can see and only something that we can know about ourselves and never about anybody else. So if spirit worship is worship which is offered in the spirit by the inner part of me, the unseen part of me, that part of me that has been born again by the spirit of God, what does that involve? Does it involve emotions? Does it involve emotions? It does involve emotions. Not only emotions. To say that spirit equals emotion is like saying car equals metal. Well, a car is made of metal, but it's also made up of a whole bunch of other components, is it not? So emotions is a part of worship. It is a component of worship, but it is not all of spirit worship. Emotions make good servants, but not good masters. Emotions must serve to, to dictate, let me put it this way, we must allow our emotions to serve us in our worship and never to dictate to us what our worship will be. We control our emotions, and we must keep our emotions in check. And we must keep from over-emoting. And we must allow, at the same time, engage our emotions so that we are emoting. Because if we ever get to the point where all we're ever doing is a dry, heartless, stale, orthodox-only approach to worship, and our emotions are not involved in it, then, friends, we have fallen down and we have failed to worship. Because emotions must be involved at some level. Look through the... They say, what kind of emotions would be acceptable? Look through the Psalms. At the whole gamut of human emotion, everything from exceeding joy to depression is in the Psalms. All of that is acceptable in worship. All of that is an expression to God, uh, an expression of our affections and our emotions and our spirit to God in whatever state our spirit is. And all of it is appropriate and has its place in emotion in worship. But we must never assume that the more intense the emotion the more authentic the worship. Because that's not necessarily true. Emotions are a part of it, a component, but not the sole component. There are other components to spirit worship, like our affections. That's different than emotions. Affections is the direction of our heart. 
our love, our priorities, our likes and dislikes, our, our love for God, the, thing, the, the, the affections of our heart must be aimed toward Him in order to be spiritual worship. The will has to be involved in spirit worship because the spirit, our soul, is the seat of our redeemed will, our freed will. That is where, so our will is involved in worship as well. When we come to God and we say, I will today submit myself to your word and I will worship you and I will offer to you myself. All of that is a function of the redeemed, liberated, uh, spirit-infused will of the believer. And we willingly offer ourselves in obedience and love and affection and adoration and praise. All of those elements are involved. Our emotions, our will, our affections, our priorities, the whole unseen part of me. That capacity of me which has been regenerated by the Spirit of God, which communes with God, that's what it involves. Now what does it exclude? What does it not involve? What is it not? Sometimes defining something is its just as easy to say what it's not as it is to say what it is. Here's what it's not. It is not a mere formalism. It's the opposite of mere formalism, just going through the motions. That was one of Jesus' criticisms of the people of his day, the religious leaders and the nation of Israel. He didn't criticize whether or not they knew the truth and had the truth, had access to the truth and had knowledge of the truth. He criticized the fact that the truth was all that they were concerned about and they never offered to God anything but true statements from their lips. And Jesus criticized them saying, you offer to me your lip service, but your heart has been removed far from me. And you read it in Isaiah. I'm sick of your new moons. I'm sick of your festivals, your feasts. I don't take any delight in any of the offerings that you give me, the animals that you that you kill and you offer on the altar. Who has required of you this trampling of my courts? You come to me with the affection of your lips only, and your heart is far from me. And their religion and their worship consisted only of tradition learned by rote. We come here and we do this, and we do this, and we do this, and we do this, and then we leave. We think that we've worshipped. That's not necessarily true. There's a real danger that you and I would fall into the same trap of formalism, even in our worship services here. One of the kids from the service last week asked me, why is it that we do something the same way every week? And we have a structure here, don't we? And the danger of having a structure is that you and I could fall into the, the rut of thinking that we go through the motions and we go through the structure, and then we can leave here with the sort of our a conscience appeased that we have worshipped this morning. And that's the danger of having structure. Now, if it's only five or six of us and we're meeting in a living room, you can get away with not having too much structure. But when 150 or 200 people get together on a Sunday morning, you have to have some sort of structure. It must be done decently and in order. And there's no problem with the structure. And there's no problem with keeping the structure the same, just so as that you and I know that when we walk in the door, the structure is not our worship. Because we can go through all the motions of the structure and still not have worshipped. And it becomes just mere formalism. Nor is worship in the Spirit, and this is to protect us against one of the ditches, nor is our worship in the Spirit a hyper-emotionalism. When we walk in the doors for a worship service, we never ask ourselves, or never say to ourselves, I'm after that feeling. I'm pursuing that feeling. I have to walk away from here feeling as if I have touched the clouds of heaven or laid hands on the throne of God, and I've got that (sighs) quiver in my liver, and my, my heart is palpitating, and I have just felt, felt the presence of God. It's not a hyper-emotionalism. It's not the equivalent of worship. When you and I walk in, and we are pursuing that, I'll ask you this question, is that man-centered or is that God-centered? That is man-centered thinking. Nor do we ever approach a worship service saying, I wonder what I'm going to get out of it today. 
fundamentally the wrong question to ask. It's not a hyper-emotionalism. Some people are like burned-out drug addicts, and they come to church every week pursuing that feeling. Got to get that lift, that charge, something to jazz me up to get me through the next six days until I can come back here on Sunday again. I got to have that. Listen to this. It is possible to genuinely, authentically worship God in spirit and feel as if heaven is silent. If you hear nothing else that I say today, hear that. It is possible to worship genuinely, authentically, in spirit and truth and feel as if nothing went past the ceiling and heaven has been silent. Want an example of that? Job. What happened when God took all of his things and his kids and afflicted him? What did Job do? He worshipped. He worshipped. And was heaven opened up and did he feel like he touched the throne of God? Did he have all of his questions answered and get a revelation of God? Not when he worshipped. That happened days later after that long conversation with his friends. Job got, did Job ever get his questions answered? Never did get his questions answered, did he? He just got uh, lambasted with a bunch of questions of his own that he was to answer. But Job never got his questions answered. Are we to assume that Job's worship there broke through the gates of heaven and he felt that liver quiver and that palpitation of the heart and that hyper-emotionalism? No, but that was genuine, spirit-wrought, spiritual, truthful worship. It is possible to worship genuinely in spirit and in truth and feel as if heaven is absolutely silent. And if you and I get nothing out of worship, does it really matter? It doesn't really matter. Why? Because all we are really interested in is have I offered to God worship from my heart, from my spirit, from the unseen part of me. What I do outwardly is irrelevant. What other people think of it is irrelevant, as long as it's not a, I mean, a distraction to other people. Obviously, if you're doing cartwheels in the aisle, it's inappropriate because it's not truth. It doesn't fit with... Um, decently and in order and being a distraction to other people. But we can worship genuinely, authentically in the Spirit and never feel as if God has spoken to us or done anything for us at all, as if heaven is absolutely silent. And we can still be a genuine worshiper. I think a lot of times we give up on worship because we don't get that quiver in the liver and we don't get the heart palpitations and the feelings and we think that therefore it's drudgery. And yet the whole time God is pleased with that. He's pleased with that. And He finds joy in that. And he's not obligated to let you know that. And he's not obligated to return anything to you as his worshiper for offering to him genuine worship. So it's not mere formalism. It's not a hyper-emotionalism. It's not a mysticism. It's not some transcendental state where we empty our minds of everything and somehow commune on a frequency that is divine. It's not a, it's not a transcendental mental state or trance at all. Worship is truth. It's when the Spirit of God leads us into truth, and it is truth that engages our spirit. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that more next week. This idea in John 4 that when Jesus said those who worship God must worship Him in spirit and in truth, it wasn't new. It wasn't new to, to Jesus. It wasn't new to the disciples. It wasn't new to anybody who would have heard this. This was the Old Testament expectation. Remember in the book of Malachi what the people offered to God in the book of Malachi? The lame, the blind, the deaf, the, the blotched and the spotted sheep and everything that was inappropriate. And they were going through all of the motions of ritualism. And God said, I'm not interested in any of that. I would rather have you shut the doors of my temple than to come in and offer that garbage on my throne. Go offer it to your king and see if he would be pleased with you. He wouldn't be pleased with you. And if he's not going to be pleased with you, what makes you think the king of heaven should be pleased with you? And we saw it in Isaiah chapter 1 and chapter 29 that God is interested in the heart attitude. 
Again, we see in Isaiah chapter 66, For my hand has made all these things, and thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But on this one will I look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. That's what God was interested in the Old Covenant. He kept telling his people, don't offer to me just the sacrifices. I don't want just the wine, and I don't want the weeping, and I don't want the words, and I don't want the feasts and the festivals and the obligations and the offerings. That's not primarily what I'm interested in. All those things should be an expression of your heart. And they thought it was all that God wanted. And that's where they erred. And God all the time was saying, what I want is your heart. I'd rather have your heart than any of those things. And they would rather give to him all of those things than their heart. Second Chronicles 16.9, The eyes of the Lord move to and, throw, to and fro throughout the face of the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Psalm 51, verse 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. That's what God is after, heart worship. In the New Testament, it's the same thing. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, We have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. That's heart worship. Hebrews 13, Through Him, then, let us offer continually up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. That describes heart worship. Actions there, but actions that are motivated by the heart. In 1 Peter chapter 2, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's heart worship, spiritual sacrifices. Thanksgiving, that's the affections and that's the emotions of the heart. So now that we understand what worship in spirit is, what are the implications for that, for our worship service here and during the week? So let's apply it first to a very narrow sliver of our life, and that's 9 to 12 on Sunday morning. That which we have done here. What does worship and spirit mean for us when we gather together here? What do we do? What does that look like? How is my spirit engaged in this? And I'm not offering to you forms and formalism, nor am I endorsing an order of service or a structure. I'm just trying to describe for you with what we do what spiritual worship looks like as you look inside. And here's how. here's what it would look like. First, it begins when you wake up Sunday morning knowing I am going today to the people of God and I am going to offer to God something that nobody else can see. And that is the affection, the adoration, the obedience, and the submission of my heart. Now that may involve for you, and I don't know if it does or not, that may involve for you that you get up a little bit early on Sunday morning and that you spend some time repenting and that you spend some time in prayer and that you spend some time preparing yourself. Or maybe you do that on the way here. Or maybe you do it out in the parking lot before you ever get out of your vehicle. Or maybe you prefer to come in here and sit down and to prepare your heart. But it means that we prepare our heart because we understand that our heart is about to be engaged in worship. And we also do, and this is a side note, we also do everything we can to eliminate distractions for us and for the people around us. Now, I understand that there are situations and circumstances that we cannot avoid. There are things that happen in the service. A cell phone goes off. There's a crying baby. There are things that are beyond our control that distract us when we get together. But for our part, I think it's appropriate that we do everything we can to eliminate all the distractions that are within our power to eliminate. So that might involve turning off your cell phone. Um, it might involve doing whatever you, I mean, going to the bathroom before the service. All of those things are part of doing what we can so that we're not a distraction to those people around us. And I understand, parents, it's very hard when you got kids. It's very difficult because I have four kids. So I know, I have four distractions. And they've distracted us all in the past. But there are things that we can do if we put forth a little effort to eliminate those so that we do not distract from other people offering to God the affections of their heart. 
I can tell this story because it happened about 12 years ago when we were over in the, um, the old church building. There was a lady who showed up one Sunday, and we were in the middle of singing, and I was leading worship at the time, which you should be very thankful that that doesn't happen anymore because that actually facilitates you being able to worship in the Spirit. We were meeting over there, and there was a, a lady who, during the singing, her cell phone went off. And I mean loud, loud ringing. And she picked it up, hello, right in the middle of the singing. Hello, no, hold on, say that again. No, no, I'm, hold on, let me get out of here. And this started to make her way, she sat right in the middle of the pew. Make her way out, excuse me, pardon me, got to the end. Can you hand me my Bible, pass me my bag? And she's working her way out, it's just her all by herself. And she left, talking all the way out the back of the door and down the stairs and outside, and she wasn't there after the service. And the next week she showed up, and I thought to myself, that was so embarrassing for that lady. She is not going to do that again. Right in the middle of the worship, the exact same thing happened again. And the following week, it happened during the sermon. And she acted as if she was totally oblivious to what had gone on. And so I happened to catch her, I think the fourth or the fifth week that she was there, outside, and, I, and, and people had been asking me, have you noticed the lady with the cell phone in the back? <laughs> Notice? We are 40 people meeting in a room not much bigger than this stage. How can you help but notice? You have to be comatose not to notice that. So I went up to her after this, uh, before the service one week, and I said, the, the cell phone has been going off during the middle of the service. That's kind of a distraction, and some people have mentioned it. And maybe just out of consideration, would you mind turning off your cell phone before you came into the worship service today? And she was grievously offended. She said, I am a, I am a flagger. I'm one of those people who holds the pole when they do the, the road work. I am a, a flagger, a road work person, and I need to be on call 24-7 because if there's an accident and they need a flagger, I need to be able to run out of here in a moment's notice and go to work. I thought, there's that kind of tragic uh, uh, traffic emergencies that it constitutes this. And so I said, well, can you put it on vibrator? No, I need to be able to hear it. And I said, you know, ma'am, it really is a distraction. And she got offended, turned around and walked away, and she never came back again. Now, that type of distraction, not every distraction is like that. And there are distractions that we have control over. You can turn off your cell phone. There's things that you can do. I understand there are things that we can't do. But friends, when we gather together here, this is a sacred time. As God's people, when we offer together to Him praise. And anything that distracts from that, we have to do everything in our power to keep that from having out of res- happening for, out of respect for the people around us. But sometimes I think that that little bit of effort that is required to do that, to use the bathroom before we come in, to get a drink or whatever it is, is just too much when we consider other people or God. It's, it's not too much. It's not too much to do that. I'm not trying to get down on you. I think most of the things that go on here are just things that are outside of our control. So what does spirit worship look like when we're singing? Well, when we are engaged in singing, up here with the words on the, on the wall behind me, we are thinking through and looking through those words, and we are engaging our hearts on the level of those words and in the truth that they are conveying. And we are affirming those in our spirit, and we are singing those with God in our minds. And this takes discipline to discipline our hearts and minds to keep it focused on those things. I know it does because some of the songs are so familiar that we just sing them without even thinking through the words. But to worship in the Spirit is to engage the affections and the emotions and the desires of my heart and of my spirit in what is being sung. And then in special music, when the, when the special is being played, that's not entertainment. That's not a production. They're not up there performing for you or for me. You know what they're doing? They are worshiping one on one. And we are observing that. And then we in our soul are participating in that worship as we reflect upon the truth that is being sung 
or as we reflect upon the giftedness that is on display, or as we participate in a proxy sort of way with the worship that is transpiring there. That is one-on-one worship because they are performing for an audience of one. Now, if they're performing for you, they've totally missed the point. They're performing for an audience of one. And he must be pleased with it. And we participate in it. In a quiet way, in a reflective way, in a spiritual way, it is lifting our hearts to God. And we are engaged in that. Now, preaching. Preaching is the act that engages your mind, not your spirit, right? Wrong. Entirely wrong. This is a deeply spiritual act because I will tell you right now, I am preaching to an audience of one. Not preaching for you. I hope Christ is pleased with this. But he is my audience. And you participate in this as you affirm with your affections and your emotions and your thinking the truth that is here being presented. And as we gather together and our hearts are brought together and we are conformed in the likeness of Christ by submitting ourselves to the word, excuse me, to the word, because I am up here and I am under this word and you are under this word and I'm not over this word and you're not over this word. None of us judge or criticize or critique this word. We all submit ourselves to this word individually and corporately and that is an act of the spirit. It is an act of obedience. When we hear truth proclaimed, we say, that's right. I understand that. I understand what the application of that is. And so now I will take that and I will walk away from here and I will in obedience submit myself to that truth and allow that truth to conform me into the image of Christ and to renew my heart and my spirit before God. That's spiritual worship. Now, Sunday morning, 9 to 12, is just a small sliver of our life. What about Sunday afternoon from 12 through all the way through Saturday night? What about then? Are we off the hook for worship? No. Because our Sunday morning worship is just a reflection and a manifestation of what goes on the rest of the week. So if you come here on a Sunday morning and your spirit and your soul are not engaged in worship, it is likely because all week long your spirit and your soul have not been engaged in worship. And you cannot possibly offer to God something here in three hours that you have not been offering to Him out there the whole week. It can't be done. It's just a farce then. It's just a joke. It's just fabricated nonsense. It's idolatry. That's why Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, whatever you do in word or do, do all things to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, you do it to the glory of God. Everything we are engaged in from this moment forward for the rest of the week is done to the glory of God. So here's what it looks like in your family. When you men lead your wife and lead your children and you read the Bible together and you pray together, that is an act of worship. It's an act of worship. You do it in obedience to God and you are worshiping together as a family and you are leading your family in worship so that when you come together here, it's not a joke. You lead your family in worship and you offer that to the Lord day after day after day after day in your homes so that when you get here, it's the most natural expression of your whole family to worship God in that way. And wives, when you submit to your husband's leadership and you love them and you respect them and you honor them and you follow that leadership and you support them and encourage them, you are offering to God all of that an act of worship. And men, when you love your wife and you encourage your wife and you show them consideration, that's an act of worship. When you discipline your children, you do so for the glory of God because that is an act of worship. Everything you do, everything you do has this aim, the glory of God. It is gospel-centered, God-centered, God-glorifying activity every day in my home so that I am leading my children in worship so that when we come together as a family we are worshiping and we are just part of a much larger gathering of families that are worshiping so that we don't have this being something awkward or new or just we're just going to try and wing it on Sunday morning. It is all the expression here on Sunday morning of what has been happening in my home all week long. And listen, your work is an act of worship. 
The vocation that God has given to you to use in your hands, whether it is being a janitor, a shoemaker, a window, window glazer, a doctor, a custodian, a lawyer, whatever it is, the work of your hands is a dispenser of common grace to all the people on the planet and to God's people, and it is in itself an act of worship because you serve Christ in that place. And what you are doing is an act of service to Him. He is your primary audience, and you must make sure that He is pleased with everything that you do because that is all worship. So you wake up tomorrow morning, you get up, you lead your family, you love your family, that's an act of worship. You go to work, you worship, you come home, you worship with your family, you go to sleep. That's a break from worship. That's your break. Then you wake up this next morning, you do it all over again. You do that for five days, you do that all day Saturday, you come here on Sunday morning, and this little sliver of heaven, when we all get together, we offer in spirit and in truth. Now what I'm describing to you is hard, isn't it? I know it's hard. It's, it's not impossible, and it is impossible without the Spirit of God. He must be the one to deliver us from formalism, and He must be the one to deliver us from our self-seeking ways and our, our polluted motives and all of the other stuff that distracts us and keeps us from doing these things. But even though it is hard, it is an act of obedience for me to say, Lord, I will do this because I love you, because you are worthy of this, and you are worthy of this and so much more. And I will obey you in this, and I will conform my heart to your word, and I will do what you have asked me to do out of love to you, love to others, love for your church, love for your truth, love for your kingdom, and love for your glory. And that's what we do. Now listen, I could give you a hundred things to do which would be easier than any one thing I've described to you this morning. I could give you a list. You're going to kneel down, do dependence, say so many Hail Marys. All of that would be much easier than anything I've described here, spiritual worship. That's why the temptation is to rest upon formalism and liturgy and all of those things to make us think that we have worshipped because that's the easy way out. I close with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Quote, It is far more difficult to worship God in spirit than in form. To pater through a dozen Ave Marias or pater nosters is so easy that I can nearly go to sleep over them. To repeat a form of prayer in the morning and evening is a very small matter and one can be thinking of the shop all the while. To go to church or chapel so many times a week is a cheap duty And withal, one may still be a thief or a hypocrite. But it is very hard, hard, very hard, to bring the heart down to humble penitence and the spirit, soul, to holy meditation. The last thing that most people will do is to think. The noblest part of our being is still the least used. Humbly to tremble before God, to confess sin before Him, to believe Him, to love Him. This is spiritual worship. And because this is so hard, men say, no, no, let me crawl on my knees around a shrine. Let me kneel down before a pyx. Let me help to make a cope or to manufacture some piece of millinery for the priest to wear. Let me go every morning to the steeple house and to come out in half an hour. And I feel I have done my religion. That is quite easy. But the hard part of religion is spiritual worship. And yet again, to worship God spiritually, men would have to part with their sins. There is no effect produced upon a man's conscience by his being sprinkled or by his taking the sacraments. He can do all that and be as much a pleasure lover or a worshiper of mammon as he was before. But to worship God spiritually, a man must give up his sins, must overcome his pride and lust, and his evil desires must be cast out of him. Many persons might honestly declare, I do not mind worshiping God if it consists of doing penance or doing without meat on Fridays. But if I am to give up my sins, to love God, to seek Christ, and to trust Him, I cannot attend to that, end quote. It's easier, isn't it? Give me some form that I can do. Ask me to give up a lust or pride. 
that I can't do. That the sinful man is unwilling to do. But that is the essence of spiritual worship. Let's pray together. Father, before you we bow our hearts, our wills, our affections, our emotions. You have made all of these things so much part of our being that we are familiar with them day in and day out. You ask us to submit them to you, and yet it is a very difficult thing. We confess that. We confess that we are not what we ought to be, and we pray that you would make us that. Make us true worshipers. As we yield ourselves to you, God, we repent of our lax attitude toward corporate worship and toward individual worship. We repent of our unwillingness to submit to you in these things. And we pray, O oh God, that you would unite our hearts together in oneness and in love and in unity under your word that you might accomplish among us in this church the things which would please you. As your people, Lord, we want to bow our knees before you and to please you in all things. Make that the cry and desire of our hearts. Do this work in us, O God, and give us grace to that end, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.